Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I am your host, Bart Vanderzee, and I am joined by my good friend, Mr. Mike Dawson. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's it's an unusual treat to be on the other side. Yes, it is. Because, I mean, you're you're a podcaster. We are on the same network. We're both on the Drum Click with uh, lots of cool shows, which we'll, we can talk about that later and go into more detail about uh, how cool it is to be on a network together. But um, it's it's cool for me because I listened to you all the time on um, the Modern Drummer podcast going back years uh, and years with Mike Johnson. And and um, it's it's just an awesome show. And you guys did a great job. You had hundreds of episodes, 200 something, 50, something like that. Yeah, 250 technically, but the last four were like compilations. So 246 is what we ended with. <laughs> it's funny because like I remember hearing those compilations. I remember like walking my dog by my old house and just listening to those compilations and being like, wow, it's ending. Like the show <laughs> yeah. is coming to an end. It was weird because like I think for a lot of us, I got to say, you know, kudos to you and Mike, uh, because it really I think it was like a part of people's lives. Like I know it was for mm. me, like like I remember listening to it, walking into work every day and just loving it. So um well done. You 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 did a great job with that. Thank you. I guess it was 2014 when we started that sucker or 15, something like that. It's hard to believe. Yeah, and it was, it was just a lark. He wanted to, you know, we just would talk to each other every week, and he's like, "Why don't we record this?" And then it became a thing, and there now we have an obligation. So he'd be in <laughs> Ireland, and we'd have to figure out how to record. It was I was at the beach, and we had to figure out how to yeah. record. <laughs> there was a few where it was like, "Oh man, you guys are like." One time, I think you were in like a hotel room together at like Nam or something. Yeah, we did do one at Nam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was like. This is weird. Like I've never done I've done one or two in-person interviews. They're always done remotely. And I think when I did it in person, I did it in New Orleans in the back of Preservation Hall. And I was like, this is weird. I'd like to be <laughs> I like to be on the computer because it's like it's my home base. But um That's no, funny. <laughs> it, it was awesome. I mean, you guys did a great job. But so now though. Um, no longer with MD, you got you are now the chief creative officer at Drum Factory Direct, uh, which is just an awesome company. Um, you seem you seem very happy there. It seems like a great fit for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how how far you want to go into it, but essentially they they hired me to be a freelance writer because mm. we're you know working on a new website, and it was really really odd. He sent me some links like these are the kind of articles I want to start doing, and he had no idea that I was actually the the lead editor on all these articles that he was sending me. <laughs> so I was like, funny. hey, Matt, you know what? These were all my ideas. So why don't we talk about something like a job here? You want me to join? So I was like, I was full time, but but 1099 because I was still in Jersey. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, if you can move to Pittsburgh, we'll put you on salary and, and make you part of the staff. So that was the impetus. At that time, Broadway had just shut down. So I had no reason to be near New York City anymore. I wasn't subbing. There were no gigs. So my wife and I were like, why don't we sell this house, which has been a financial burden, and go somewhere that's like half the price? Yeah. Pittsburgh. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it's awesome to see you land there. And 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 you're you're someone who, I mean, finding cool jobs in the drum industry, I guess, is not the easiest thing in the world, but you seem to like always your your writing skills and stuff. I think people have been aware of your work. You've you've carved a cool place for yourself in the drum industry, which I think you kind of have to do. So what we're here to talk about today, though, is very recently, uh, I believe it was September 12th. I'm looking at the press release. Uh, Roland acquired DW. As an industry guy, what's your take on it? 
I was surprised. I'm not going to say that I expected DW to sell anytime soon, although it's pretty well known that high-end acoustic drum sales have been really slow, especially since the pandemic set in. I mean, the pandemic almost killed everybody, so no pun intended. It almost no, really, I know. it almost destroyed every company in in the world, but in the drum industry in particular. I mean, I think DW furloughed their entire staff, and so did almost everybody else. So we can't forget that like everyone has been struggling, and a company with with that much overhead and that much that many assets to manage it's not surprising now that i think about it but when i saw that press release it was like whoa dw the one the company who's been trying to gobble up everybody now is being gobbled up by an even bigger corporation and it's not an acoustic company so all that was kind of shocking then i started thinking well why would roland buy dw and i know there's been certain the hardware obviously they want you know, why not incorporate the best hardware on the best electronic kits? Yeah. I mean, V drums um, are awesome. They're, they're, they're premium. Uh, they're really great that you pay for them. I mean, you can spend, you can spend as much money as you want on a V drum set. You know what I mean? I feel like you, yeah, you see some yeah. that are $12,000 plus, um, DW also has DW drums and hardware, Pacific drums and percussion, which it was interesting to see PDP grow from when I was a kid. I remember getting, you know, I'd get my $25 PDP stand that I still yeah. have behind me. Um, <laughs> and the drums have gotten a lot more high quality over the years. But uh, DW, though, in their portfolio, LP, Latin percussion and yeah. Gretsch drums and Slingerland. So yeah. it's really not just a clean we're buying dw that's it it's a lot we're, of stuff we're gonna stick. see i mean just like when dw bought all those companies from kmc very quickly they started dispersing those assets i think we're gonna see roland doesn't want lp why would they want lp we'll see what happens uh roland do they want i guess gibraltar wasn't part of it anymore but remember dw had acquired gibraltar and part of their acquisition of kmc which was odd because you got dw hardware why would they want gibraltar well they didn't they just had to take it and then they off offed it later so i think some of these bits i mean i'm i'm i'll, I'll air my concerns i don't think slingerland will ever come back which is sad um, i mean I, it is it's sad we've talked about that a lot on the show and actually when don came on it was like uh, which Don was on not that long ago and it was sort of a thing where it was like we talked about it he said we're working on snares and i wonder I know that he had to keep it close to his chest, but I'm like, how long has the Roland thing been happening where you kind of wonder, it, like, how long do these things take? Because why would they have bought Slingerland if they knew this was going to be happening? And he was talking about making snares. But you know what I mean? Like, when when did this ball start rolling? Because this thing doesn't happen overnight. I mean, they still could, I guess, put out a Radio King snare and just just make it a thing. But, I, you know, I don't. Like, yeah, not knowing the details of who actually controls all that stuff, but sure. I think I think Slingerland will be something we'll probably never see again. I hope I'm wrong because I have I love Slingerland. I have a bunch of kits in the in the studio back there. Um, the other thing with um, like PDP, so we'll have to see is does does Roland want PDP shells for their V drum kits or do they want DW shells? Why would they want DW shells for V drum kits? Kind of overkill. So maybe PDP is going to become the flagship drums. Huh. So I'm looking at like over the history of acquisitions, which, which we'll go through. Inevitably, what happens is someone buys and then goes for the bottom dollar. 
So inevitably, Rogers gets sold, and then they become cheap kits. Uh, Gretsch, Black Hawk, you could get those out of Sears catalog at one point. So is DW going to all of a sudden become a cheap kit? Uh, that's a who knows. Maybe they'll just use the PDP processes and slap the DW logos on it. I mean, we just don't know what's going to happen. But so all that's a concern. I think the high end custom shop. Now, I do think with with the Lombardis and um, John Good retaining control, I guess, of DW is similar to Gretsch, where Fred Gretsch still controls the USA Custom. Yeah. Let's hope that that's the terms of their agreement, so they still get to exist. But Roland gets to market DW on whatever the hell they want. Can you? Let's ex- hope. Can you like? Actually, I've always been a little uh, confused by that about like the process of like so DW like the, the relationship between DW and Gretsch because when that happened, it was sort of like, well, wait, does because I I remember kind of hearing, well, they're just DW's just doing the distribution of Gretsch now or something like that. What what happened with DW to Gretsch? That goes back. I'm looking at this now here. My my Gretsch outline 2000. Um, Command Music obtained the rights for import instruments from Gretsch. So Command Music was now, you know, importing the renowns and all the stuff made in Taiwan. Where Gretsch retained the rights to USA Custom and Signature Products and the machinery. So they didn't sh- they didn't sell the machines. Command bought just the rights to the brand for the import stuff. Got it. So when DW bought the stuff from KMC. All they got was the rights to the Gretsch import and distribution. The family still owns the, the, the factory and all the USA custom shop stuff. One thing that's interesting that, that um, uh, like, I guess, you know, Joe Schmo doesn't really realize is KMC uh, command, like Cardinal Percussion, who I've been talking with, who owns Wuhan and a bunch of stuff. Like there's these companies that you'll really never hear the brand name of like um like mapex and sonar are under the same umbrella and things like that like that's kind of industry stuff but like this i mean in a in a dream world like yes roland now owns all these companies but do you think there's a chance that nothing will change and we'll just we'll literally see no difference dw will still keep going on uh is that Mm -hmm. even an option like or will everything change? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I have to say, I don't, I have no insider information, so I, I can't be held to my word on this. But having worked with Roland as a journalist and on that side of the industry, they really like to control their brands. They mm. like to control their image. They like to control every word that is put out into the public about their products. I don't know how DW's marketing team could operate autonom- autonomously. I don't know how. I don't even know if they'll be able to retain a marketing department because it would be so much, so many issues of you have a marketing director who wants to do an ad campaign, but it has to go up through all the ranks at Roland to get approval. I mean, you're talking like drums is a tiny bit of what Roland is going to be doing. So there's going to be sub managers and vice presidents. And I mean, yeah, like red tape. Yeah. So that I don't know how. I mean, I guess the. We'll just have to see. I mean, again, again, I hope it's like the Gretsch deal where DW USA just does what they do. Yes, but DW and Gretsch are both uh, American companies where it's a little bit easier, whereas now we're dealing with a Japanese company, which, I mean, 
it, it should also be said just to kind of keep it all fair and, and nice and stuff like Roland is awesome, like very high quality equipment. No one's denying that. But it's just the like mixing of two companies that that causes like a bit of a rub. And again, do, dealing with a company with uh, different like ethics and different like uh, standards of practice halfway around the world just has to be. Uh, some growing pains um, it's going to be slow for them i mean think if you think up until now because dw might be the only family-owned drum company you know that's larger than like a boutique left um so if don or chris or john had an idea they just did it there was no one to say hey you can't you can't do that because we have to go up the ranks now they're going to have to go now they're going to have to run every idea past someone um because it's no longer their money uh you know that's we shall see again i I think their their infrastructure is already established i don't know how much more innovation they need to do um yeah i mean but like this might change like 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 you don't call up japan and go hey we're gonna like unearth a ten thousand year old log (laughs) and we're gonna build and do a drums you know what i mean like they're very like 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 they're known for like kind of crazy drums that are like made of insane woods where uh maybe that is something that goes away because you got to explain it yeah. um i don't yeah i don't think the 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 private jet flights to remote areas of the world to grab a tree <laughs> are going to happen anymore i'd be surprised if we see any more of that because that's like you want to spend how many thousands of dollars on 10 drum sets uh, i don't <laughs> i don't think so yeah <laughs> you know it's interesting um dw has a background of like i don't want to say being controversial of like like there's there's a uh, they're polarizing where some people are like the, like oh the 90s ones are great the collector series from this area are, era are great oh those newer ones are crap i love dw i hate dw they're not strangers to this kind of like uh, good slash bad slash uh, being a topic of discussion amongst drummers, you know, that's kind of common for DW. Yeah, I think that once they started going super high end and race car finishes and all, because I think about when they really became popular, it was the early 90s and it was when punk rock became mainstream. And that was their artists when they got Alice in Chains and they got Pearl Jam. I mean, it was it was bands who were still in a in a van and trailer at the time kind of more like the cnc vibe of today sure you know? that's what they were and for them when they got so big and they started transitioning to now we're going to price out our original consumers i can see why there was a bit of like what happened to dw it's just where they went it's where they chose to go but 1992 93 94 it was it was the new hot indie rock thing yes and always on TV. Everyone wanted it. Always, yeah, everyone wanted always it. behind. You'd always see the DW logo, which, as a kid growing up in that time, it was like, yeah, I want that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but exactly. I can't afford it because it was three thousand, four thousand dollars. <laughs> but um, we shall see. And I mean, looking at the press release, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just kind of looking at a couple key things right off the bat, it does say the combination of expertise and reach of Roland and Drum Workshop will unleash the next generation of breakthrough acoustic and electronic drums and percussion products accelerate product development and push the boundaries of innovative uh, drummers innovation for drummers and it also says that chris lombardi and don lombardi and john good will continue to serve in their existing capacities at the company focusing on creating products that inspire drummers everywhere makes me think a little bit of um wfl2 the chief staying on 
when Ludwig got sold and working there for a little bit and just not liking it. I mean, I feel like it's it's hard to stay on your company, your baby when someone else comes in and kind of starts to tell you what to do. So hopefully they stick around for a long time. I'm sure they have a contract for a couple years or something like that. But um, yeah, we can always see. But yeah, there's other sides of it, too. Like I remember this might probably not widely known, but DW has been working on um, drum mixing software for years. They it, at the NAMM show several times, they were all about like, you got to check out they, they call it. It's available, it, but it's like no one talks about it. It's called. The DW Drum Enhancer. Oh wow! Like uh, it's like, a plugin, uh, like Slate kind of like enhancer, like uh, it's drum mixing. It's a drum mixing plugin. So you buy this for a hundred bucks, and they've got presets: modern kick, vintage kick, heavy kick, modern tom. So it's like it's easy way to mix your drum recording. Okay. And it, it's got. I mean, they spend a lot of time and money making the the interface look really slick, so it looks like a piece of hardware. There was definitely an AM show when that was like all they wanted to show me was check out this. You got to mess with this. Interesting. And then it kind of went silent. So Roland obviously knew this existed, and they either wanted to absorb it or kill it. Who knows? Because Roland's been notoriously anti-software too for a long time. They wouldn't let you put your samples into their kits for a long time. That was not. They were proud of the sounds that came with their modules. It would be insulting to ask to put your own sounds in it. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the the way I was presented with that. And they made a shift because now you can do that with all their modules. And here's this tool, which will be a transition from acoustic drums. You can play your drums. You can mix them in the box and have that interface with some sort of Roland product. I mean, that seems like a logical. I don't know if it's worth how many millions of dollars. No, because there's a, there's a <laughs> lot of things like that. I mean, there's like the plugin world is super competitive. I mean, you're up against Waves, Slate. I mean, there's I can't there's there's hundreds, thousands of, of companies who are doing that. And um, it's just like everything. It's really competitive. But I mean, we shall see. Um, I mentioned it to you. Well, actually, let me give a couple shout outs real quick. I, I do need to. I was looking for his name when we first started talking. So this entire idea for this episode uh jacob osborne on instagram sent me a message and said please do an episode on bigger companies acquiring drum companies and the history of that so thank you to jacob for suggesting this i should have said it earlier but i was looking for exactly how to your, you know the correct name and everything so thanks jacob um and then my friend uh brian lancer um said uh and this is an interesting just like topic. He said it makes a lot of sense as the synth market becomes more and more software based moving into acoustic instrument. The acoustic instrument market seems pretty logical and it jumps off of what they're saying um, in the press release where it says that they are getting into the V drum acoustic design. We've seen that recently. I've never used those. I'm assuming you've probably tried stuff like that in in your yeah. roles of like, you know, it's an e-drum, but it's got an actual drum shell. Like, yeah. what's the benefit of that? What's the like, I mean, do you get, is it like a hybrid? Like you can play both ways? What's the deal with no, that? No, it's just appearance. It just feels like an acoustic kit. It looks like an acoustic kit. You remember on the, the, the Super Bowl halftime, Trevor Lawrence Jr. was playing one of these kits. It looks like a real kit, but it's not. It's got... You know, it's got the mesh heads and everything, in it. but it feels more like a real kit. I remember I was talking with a friend of mine at a competitor role, and I won't name, but it was a different company. And he was like, "What do you think we should do with with our stuff?" And I said, "You've got to get you've got to get rid of these terrible racks and just make it a drum set. Just give me toms and cymbal stands and a hi hat. Just make it a drum set. I don't need this 
awful rack with all these terrible little arms and stuff. Yeah. Which he later explained to me that it's just so much cheaper to include a rack versus all the stands. But that's what the VAD concept for me was. Like, it's, it's an, it just feels like a drum set. It looks like a drum set. It's the same size as a drum set. Everything is just sure familiar. It's just electronic. So you'll be able to get a DW kit. I'm assuming swap the heads out with the mesh heads with triggers. And now you've got, you can maybe just have your second Tom be a trigger Tom or your floor oh, Tom be cool. a trigger Tom or just the kick drum or just the snare, just depending. Um, there's a couple artists, I can't remember who, that they would make the drummer play an electronic snare drum because they didn't want the acoustic snare in the vocal mic. Oh, you weird. Know, that kind of stuff. Or the cymbals. They don't want the cymbals in the, the vocal mic. So electronic pads for cymbals. That makes sense. So I see a lot of, a lot of integration that it won't, it won't look like you're playing electronic drums on stage. Do you need the most expensive drum shells in the world, or could it be Pacific? That's or, what I'm saying. Yeah, it's exactly. going to be the PDP factory. I'm, I can almost guarantee with the DW logos on it. I don't know why they would go for the VLT and the X shells and all this stuff if it's going to have mesh heads on it. Interesting. Um, so I think there'll be some sort of PDP incorporation. Again, I'm just predicting. I don't know what the heck is actually happening, but... I feel like there's going to be a PDP usage more for Roland versus a DW high-end. Yeah. Because um, just cheaper cheaper drums would make them real drums, full-size shells that you can easily convert. That would be the thing for me. Can I easily convert my acoustic drum set to a, a high-end Roland kit? That would be amazing. Yeah. Like both. Having the option to do both. Yeah. Not stuck to one. I mean, and, and also thinking, too, about the enormous roster of drummers who play DW, they're going to keep making those drums for those people to keep the like the brand and the reputation alive. I mean, there's a parallel. Remember um, Orange County Drums and Percussion? Of course, yeah. They, uh, Guitar Center bought, bought them, you remember. I do. And immediately did what I was feared that anyone who buys a company does. They just make it cheaper and, and not as good. Yeah. But they kept, for a while, they kept their high-end factory open to make Travis Barker's kits. Exactly. To make. Yeah. And that ended up becoming, I mean, Jeremy Berman was OCDP's primary builder and now Q drums. So once that high end custom shop shut down, he started Q drums. But I mean, that was a smaller operation. It's not obviously not as giant as DW, but that was one of the first things I thought about. Here's Guitar Center buying the coolest boutique company in the world. Yes. And immediately made it not cool yeah, <laughs> immediately there's a whole like from like two months ago or whatever there's a whole ocdp episode which was awesome which people have been really loving that goes into detail about that which uh very i didn't even think about that a lot of parallels there where the venice series or whatever where it turns into that and um and i think uh bill dedimore built those for guitar center uh or at least did right. the finishing so um we shall see. I, I hope it goes well. You got to just be happy for Don Lombardi. I mean, he built this company with John Good from from the ground up. And, um, you know, it's kind of a payday, I guess, which there's nothing wrong with that for all your hard work. So, I mean, that's the evolution of business, right? You yeah. always have the innovator, but an innovator doesn't train another innovator. An innovator trains has someone who runs the business. Well, when the innovator is done innovating, all that's left is the business. And yeah. the person running the business is going to go for the best opportunity yeah. available at all times. So I think it's just natural. I mean, it's just, unfortunately, it's just the lifespan of a business. You get so big to where you're now running a business, you're not innovating and being creative anymore. 
what is there left to do but to sell well, that's <laughs> eventually? Like, you know, you watch like uh, Shark Tank or like The Prophet or whatever, which had SJC on it. It's like they all they talk about is like, well, what's what, what's your exit strategy? When are you going to sell? And it's like I always hear that. I'm kind of like, well, what if you just want to like have the business and keep the business? And it's like, well, no, I guess the plan is to sell it and, you know, buy a yacht and sail away. Yeah. I mean, it'll eventually decline. That's what happened throughout history. The drone companies just eventually declined. So someone said, well, now's a good, I mean, my, my previous employer, it was, you know, like how long could it go along before someone had to come in and buy it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just inevitable. It is. And that's a great segue now to maybe talk about some, uh, like historical, you know, acquisitions of drum companies. So you've got a bit of an outline put together, uh, maybe we just go through a few and talk about parallels to what's happening now. So, uh, yeah, whatever you want to start with, just let's let's hear a few. Yeah, I think before I go, because this was like historical, I wanted to go with the big four. Like, how did, you know, what happened with Ludwig and Rogers and Slingon and Gretsch? Because there was a lot of period. I'm thinking when I first started playing drums in the late 80s, it was the dark ages of American drum making. Like, Ludwig was was garbage. I'm sorry. No one wanted to play. Aside from Alex Van Halen, like I didn't see anyone playing Ludwig. Rogers didn't exist. Slingerland did not exist, except for like some random high school would have an old Slingerland kit. <laughs> yeah. Gretsch was not even a company to my awareness. It was they had Phil Collins, but I saw no drummers. All everyone was playing Yamaha and Tama and Pearl. That was it. So so much drama happened leading up to that point to where it just became like, well, what are these companies? So, uh, but I'm thinking about when I first entered the industry, a lot happened too. like 2000, I got into the industry in 2004 and almost immediately, uh, Dario bought Evans and then Dario bought Promark almost immediately. And, and at the time it was the exact same story. Ah, oh, it's a big business. They're going to absorb this family businesses and they're going to destroy it and it's going to be garbage. And, you know, but I think that's one of the better success stories because of, because Evans didn't have a great reputation at that time for quality control and the Dario cleaned that all up. It took a while for them to figure out what the brand was going to be with various logo redesigns and marketing efforts that some people were like a 360. What does that mean? All that kind of stuff it took a I, while. You, but like, I mean, you're right. Everything you're saying is right. But you, you kind of have to like get past like the haters in the moment and just look at the big picture with this. Because now you look at it and you go, oh, that's cool. 360. It makes sense. Whatever. Even though I don't know really what it. But like, it's yeah. like you got to get past the, like the like hump of like everyone being like, this is crazy. It's going it's going, you know, it's going down. Now you don't really think about it, though, about the parent company buying it and being worried about it. It's like it's Evans and Promark, you know, whatever. Yeah. And they bought real field practice pads. I mean, they went. They, they got and pure sound snare wires. So oh, yeah. those were all independent companies. And I knew all the owners of the original companies when I first started. So, you know, they, they, they bought Evans. That was the first major thing. Like, oh, wow, what's going to happen? Immediately, because they'd started automating stuff and just making the manufacturing way more consistent. So, I mean, again, it took a couple of years for the marketing to kind of settle into, a, I guess they had, they were trying to prove themselves for a while or whatever, but. Sure. I think they've found a nice stride with Evans. I love the heads. I use them and they're great. I don't even think about the fact that it's a guitar string company that, that owns them anymore. Um, Promark was a little bit different story where it was, it was, that was clearly the family wanted to get out of the business. And it took a while for that to kind of settle. Like, I feel like they forgot about Promark for a while. It's like, you remember you own a drumstick company too, right? Like when are you going to clean that up? 
but now it's it's killing. Again, I use Promark sticks almost yeah. exclusively. So again, they cleaned up manufacturing. It all was success story. Pure sound wires. That was a one man operation for a long time, uh, and they took that and they got rid of some of the stuff that was like really ancillary, like vintage Tama style and sure. all. They got rid of all that stuff, but pure sound snare wires. If you ask it. 100 drummers, what's the best snare wires? 80 of them are going to say pure sound. And then they bought real fill practice pads. Again, it was a small one person operation and they bought it and streamlined it. And you can get a great practice pad at a great price pretty much anywhere. Well, with those examples, um, you kind of think for like the small one man shops, it's like, well, good for you. You just you sold your company that you started. The name still goes on. It's still it didn't just get acquired to be shut down, which companies do. Um, So as long as it keeps going and it's, you know, cool, like, like good for them. Yeah. So I can't complain about that. But at the time I remember it was every, we would have monthly meetings at the magazine, like, Oh gosh, what's the dare you going to do? Cause it, it also, it took all their marketing dollars and put it into one pool. Yeah. And as a company that sold advertising, it was like, ah, oh, well, we just, we just lost three customers. Cause it came down to and one. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we get we also get the benefit of your background with the advertising and the magazine world, which that's a whole thing of uh, no one's say. I mean, the world changes. You know what I mean? Like things change. Yeah, Yeah, that was a big one. And then um, I made some notes about command because command is a weird, weird kind of story. Command music, KMC music is part of a bigger company called Command Corporation. Command Corporation designed aero, designs Aerosmith, Aerosmith, aerospace materials, airplanes. Not Aerosmith. Not Aerosmith, <laughs> aerospace. Oh, cool. And the owner of, the founder owner of Command, Charles, he's a guitarist. Ah. So he wanted to take some of this material that they were developing at Command to create a synthetic guitar, which became Ovation Guitars. So Command Music's first brand was Ovation, which is you might have seen when all when when all these brands were being sold off throughout the past whenever that was ten years. Ovation was always stuck in there because it was part of the original deal. I mean, so that company started making guitars. Who bought KMC? Fender. And at the time, KMC had already had the rights to Gretsch, to Toka, to oh, LP, wow. to Gibraltar to cat percussion jeez so kmc had gobbled up all these other companies under their umbrella and then sold it to fender a guitar company so here we are a guitar company similar to a keyboard company yeah totally. <laughs> owning a huge portion of our market share which all of that eventually got sold to dw which all that eventually got sold to roland so it's the same chunk that went from a, a company that makes airplanes <laughs> to a company that makes Stratocasters. Wow. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Pocket Percussion in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Pocket Percussion and Peisty Cymbals are proud to present Rich Scanella on October 1st, 2022 at 2 p.m. Rich Scanella is one of the most sought-after touring, performing, and teaching drummers today. He has played with some of the most iconic superstars in the music industry, such as Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, Lady Gaga, Tonic, and many more. Head to Pocket Percussion on October 1st, 2022 at 2 p.m. for lots of shop and gear talk, an awesome clinic by Rich, and all kinds of peisty symbols that'll be at Pocket Percussion. Learn more at pocket-percussion.com and check them out on social media at Pocket Percussion.
I think the key word is like portfolio because mm. these are big companies with business. I mean, it's business minded people who are trying to grow their portfolio to make more money, which like you can't knock them. It obviously takes a little bit of the like heart out of it being a single, you know, uh, you know, person making, you know, a, a small group of people making guitars. We're way past. I mean, Fender's a huge conglomerate kind of company. So I don't know. Was that a negative thing or was that a positive thing that you think all those sales did? I mean, obviously, we saw growing pains here and there, but I don't think it really was that bad in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, it's I guess it's like the stock market. You know, you've got to you got to have a long view for this. But, you know, this was 2008 when Fender bought all this stuff. And then immediately. So think of all those brands, Gretsch, Toka, LP, Cat, Ovation, Gibraltar. Toka and LP were competitors of each other, and now they're owned by the same company because I believe KMC created Toka to compete with LP, and then they bought LP. So now you've got the two percussion manufacturers, for all intents and purposes, under the same corporation. Well, one of them has to go. How much do you see Toka percussion anymore? No. It's, you know, unfortunately, because they were doing some cool stuff more with like African drums and Brazilian instruments, not so much Afro-Cuban. So that was one thing that was at the time we were like, well, again, that's two advertisers that got shoved into one. That's this, <laughs> the entire percussion market is now controlled by one marketing budget. Um, Gretsch, this at that time, two thousand eight, they weren't hot, man. Gretsch was not hot because they they immediately focused on import stuff. Well, they had the Catalina. It wasn't that was great. probably right around yeah, that time. I mean, yeah, that stuff was cool, but it wasn't. It was. I didn't know like any top pros that were like man i can't wait to play gretch that took no. a while sure that took a while yeah so that was weird gretch kind of got put in this weird because they were because they didn't own gretch usa they only owned the international stuff so all the advertising was for the import stuff um, which the advertising though is like the face of the company of what reaches at that point i was 17 or 18 i was teaching at sam ash I bought a cheap Catalina mod kit because I was like, this is $400. Of course I'm going to buy right. it. But like, yeah. that's the face of what reaches to the, uh, you know, the mass market. So you saying the stuff about advertising actually is really important because it's like what they're focusing on to be displayed to the public is, uh, is what we see through magazines and advertising and all that stuff. So yeah. that's and interesting. What does that do for the brand image? Well, all of a sudden now Gretsch is the cheap stuff. They went from being the super high end stuff in the six fifty, sixty, seventies, eighties to like the cheap stuff. Like that's your beginning kit. Get a Gretsch Catalina. That's your beginner kit, and then you can get a DW someday. But uh, I think now I will say because you know friends with Lucas and stuff at Gretsch. Like I think they're back to being very high quality. Uh, not that they weren't yeah. offering that stuff, but uh, just now it is more of a like uh, quality first kind of product. Yeah, it was. I mean, Fender had no no reason to care about the USA factory because they didn't own it. So why would they put any money into it? They only own the the import stuff. Interesting. So when they finally sold the DW, it was shortly before that because I remember taking Mark Juliana, Mike Johnston, Zach Danziger over to the Gretsch booth to meet their team. So it was, that was 2013, 14, right before the, they got sold to DW. So that was like the beginning of 
oh, Gretch is coming back. Yeah. Everyone wants to play Gretch now. Yeah, which Mike, I mean, Mike has been a Gretch. Mike Johnston has been a Gretch guy for a long time now, but um, great. I think that's another side of it as things changed from the world. of, And we're just talking about everything change, like changes in general. But like my, like like Mike, for example, going like now, I think instead of magazines, we see the face of the drum world as social media and people who have a large following and who are drummers. And you see Mike Johnston playing Gretsch and uh, Mark Juliana and these guys, Ash Sohn. That's more of the face of of like uh, what is uh, reaching the the youth of America and the world um, is through that. So different yeah. marketing technique now. Yeah. Well, that was once once DW started putting some money into the USA could because that factory was valuable to them. They wanted those drum shells. So so that factory. So you saw like all of a sudden USA Custom was the thing. It up until then USA Custom. What the heck was it? I didn't know what it was. It was just renowned, mm-hmm. Gretsch renowned. That's that was the high high end thing. Uh, so that was that whole command fender thing was super troubling for us on the inside of the industry because it was so much of the market share controlled by a company that did not give a crap about acoustic drums, quite frankly. I don't think Roland's going to be the same scenario, but it was it was a little bit concerning. But then finally everything kind of – and then, like I said, when they sold the DW, they, they didn't need Gibraltar, so I believe they got rid of that to someone else. Um, how Leonard came, took over some of the distribution for some of these brands. So it kind of re- redistributed and made it more make sense a little bit better. But that was a weird one. And that, that goes back almost my entire career is the KMC Fender. There was some Guitar Center stuff involved and all that. These big companies kind of sharing in property for a while was was odd well, and, i mean even guitar so you just keep going deeper and deeper i remember working at guitar center and people being like like mitt romney now knows guitar center and i was like <laughs> <Right>? what <laughs> like is mitt romney my boss and they're like he owns a shampoo company too and i'm like all right i, I quit um so it's just like there's a lot behind the scenes of like what we don't know but honestly to people on the street on the everyday thing you buy a nice drum set as long as it sounds good who cares you know like yeah not it's not as i mean important. i think that's that's why pearl and tama and yamaha killed it in the 80s and 90s because they knew the only thing that mattered for a teenager or a young adult was the quality of the hardware how are these things going to yeah. hold up the shells were fine but if I took an old Ludwig kit out to a punk rock show, it it wasn't going to stay. It wasn't the bass drum was going to slide around. The cymbal stands were going to be impossible to adjust and yes. super heavy. So Pearl and Tama and Yamaha said, "Let's put incredible hardware on decent shells," and they just annihilated everybody. I mean, well, that was the old like you know Rogers dominating everything with Swivomatic and it's like you you'd think that people would catch on with like okay D, like I remember having a Ludwig like late 80s early 90s kit that was a rocker and it was like obviously that's a cheaper kit but I was like god these stands are giant and they're so heavy and <laughs> yeah, even like the so metal like wing nuts snapped so it was just like yep. I'd have to get pliers to tighten it yeah and I'd have to yep. tighten it so much and then they would just slowly fall and I still have some of my pearl stands from the 90s like I still have them yeah they're in the Yamaha stuff is it's you buy it once you're never gonna have to replace it you're just never gonna have to yeah so I mean gosh now I'm thinking about where do we go from here like part of what what I wanted to discuss was all these great American companies they all went through the same arc of of the founders who had some sort of 
like linchpin product that was their main go-to. And then something happened where they would like blow up and get super big. And then eventually that's when people will start gobbling it up. Either they got really big and it became interesting for investors or they got big and then dropped way down and someone came in to save them from bankruptcy. It's the same same arc. I don't know which side, which story DW is, is on, whether they're peaked and Roland saw the inevitable drop or Roland sees that there's even further to go with it. Um, but that's, I mean, throughout the history, Ludwig, original goal was to build a functional bass drum pedal. Yes. That was it. 1909. And then yeah. It, yeah, and then it turned into snare drums and timpani. They started making drums for the, for the military. Um, they were within, what, 16, 15 years. They were the biggest company in the world. And then GC Khan comes in and gobbles them up, right? Yeah. So they were already the biggest thing. Khan says, we want that. And then everything goes crazy from there. I think with all of these stories of drum acquisitions and buying and selling, the the acquirer, the buyer, kind of seems like the bad guy. Like just mm-hmm. right, rightfully so or wrongfully so. It's like these companies are just tossed around, and it it damages the brand for sure. I mm-hmm. guess at that time. Now we look back historically and go, you you just don't think about it like that. But in the moment, it's sort of like, well, like Ludwig and Ludwig, and then Leedy and Ludwig, and then just Ludwig. It's like it's confusing, and I'm sure then people that might just say, you know what, screw it, I'm going to buy a Slingerland or something like that. Yeah, you know? and there was WFL at the same Exa- time exactly. as Ludwig. I mean, yes. that. So if I would have lived through that, I would have thought, well, WFL is the real stuff because that's the guy who actually made the kits that everyone loves. What is Ludwig now? So, and again, it's it's a business. Like you wouldn't, Con wouldn't have come in to buy Ludwig unless they saw a way to make more money. And how do you make more money? You make the drums cheaper and you charge more for them. Mm-hmm. How do you make them cheaper? You cut costs in some way, so and it's just there's no no one's going to buy no one's going to buy DW and say, man, we got to make these drums more expensive. Yeah, we've got to make them so expensive <laughs> and so outrageous. Yeah, we're going to find even older wood. <laughs> yeah, we're going to make this the most ridiculous. I mean, that's not that's terrible business, and that's there's not one one story here that I'm looking at where someone acquired someone to make it more innovative. Is it's to make more money? That's and that's just business. That's just capitalism. I mean, you can't, however you feel about that, that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, so the Ludwig story is weird. And then, you know, they sold to Selmer, which was already, it's like they got sold to themselves. Like the, it's, it's such a strange story. They went back to Ludwig and then they got sold to Selmer, which was part of the original sell back in the, whenever that was. So their history has been strange. And a company like Selmer, they their bread and butter is like saxophones and trumpets. So Con Selmer, I mean, it's not Con Selmer Ludwig, you know. So like we're in such a small industry that we forget like a drum set is not a very profitable product to make. So you can't expect these corporations to put all of their effort into the least profitable thing. They're going to make all their money on plastic saxophones and cheap trumpets. Thank God they still have Ludwig, you know, <laughs> like For otherwise sure. – who would take on all that overhead? And they've certainly had a revitalization. I'm, I'm looking at it now. When they moved to North Carolina in 1984, that was kind of like the dark days of Ludwig, you know, that that initial move. You know, I remember playing some of that. We got a an accent kit 
Maybe it was a rocker kit. I don't remember. The community college where I was in the big band in high school, they got one of those kits and it was fine, but it was like, oh, I would never, I would never buy this. This wasn't good advertising for, for the quality when I could get a Pearl kit that would last a lifetime at the same price. They were getting pulverized by Japanese brands. So what do you expect? It's like, you can't, you know, they're not selling enough to make it to make it matter but but i do think you're right where ludwig really now i mean a lot of the brands it, it feels like they're they're they i don't want to say they're back they've been back for 20 whatever years or whatever but like mm-hmm. um it seems like a, the legacy and sticking through all those uh ups and downs has paid off they definitely came through on top um what about some examples of brands where uh it was acquired and then it just fizzled. I'm thinking Slingerland. It just dies. I think Rogers is probably the biggest yeah. depressing story because they were such the high-end DW of their time drums. And then, you know, CBS purchased them. Um, and then, gosh, they sold... Um, when was this? Island Music? And in, in, the, in the 80s, I mean, who was... All they did was make cheap stuff. So then Rogers just became the bottom yeah. dollar R three sixties or whatever. Um, yeah, so crazy. I mean that that's that timeline. I guess. I mean they they were originally started in the nineteen hundred nineteenth century. Yeah, like so eight, eighteen fifty nine, eighteen forty nine. If I'm not uh, mistaken, which which is crazy because you always think Ludwig is so old, and then I remember thinking like or Gretsch eighteen eighty three. But it was like, no, Rogers is like the earliest in, uh, what is it, Farmingdale, New Jersey? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were making drum heads at the time. So CBS bought them in 1966. That's when they went to Fullerton, California, and they were being made in the same factory as Fender guitars. Because CBS Here comes Fender again. <laughs> Fender, because I think of Wayne's World, where they say, oh, the, is it pre-CBS corporate buyout. <laughs> but then in 1983, Fender was bought out by people who worked at Fender to become what is now the Fender, Cor- whatever they're called now, Fender Corporation. And they discontinued the drums. So that that was in 1983. So the people who, again, Fender seems to keep popping up in the drum industry in some odd ways. And then, so by that point, that was when it was just a brand. There were no drums. That's when this company, Island Music, started making cheap import drums and called them Rogers. What a heartbreaking story. And then... Uh, Brooke Mays Music in Texas bought up the names so they could put that on kits that they were importing and sell them in their stores. Those were made by Peace Drums, which Peace makes fine instruments, yeah. but they're not making high-end Rogers of, of the day quality stuff. Forgot about Peace. Yeah. So that was the late 90s, so not even that long ago. Um, and then when Brooke May's music went bankrupt. Yamaha acquired the Rogers name for a minute. And that might have been one of the first NAMM shows I went to. Where all of a sudden, over in the corner of the Yamaha booth, there was a Rogers kit. <laughs> and it was obviously just some made-in-China import kit. Like, wow, okay, I guess that's where Rogers is now. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not even... It's just more of a thought starter of, like, that name and logo has so much power to it for these companies where it's like a whole brand in itself. Like that's why, you know, um, DW acquires Slingerland and stuff like that. Cause there's so much potential that you could do with it. But, um, you know, I have high hopes for anyone who buys it. bringing back Slingerland. Great. But it's always sort of like, it'll never be the same. 
You know what I mean? No. Like, and it's also it's been it's been dormant for so long that who cares? Exactly is, is ultimately the question. And I, I know like the Rogers that are coming out now are absolutely amazing, yes. beautiful drums. They're pretty true to form. I got the review um, one of the kits a while ago, and I had it side by side with my my actual Rogers kit from early seventies, I believe. And the twelve inch Directon was identical. You couldn't tell them apart. So the new stuff that Rogers is putting out now is amazing, but it's really expensive and. There's been so many years of no one even knowing what Rogers is. Like, how do you how do you cash in on the cachet unless you're selling only to 65 year old drummers at this point? How many kits can you sell? Like, it's it's a tough it's a tough sell because of all that time when like no one cared, you know. And then all of a sudden, Rogers you can buy a Rogers kit in a Sears catalog or whatever. Like, how can you now say these are these are the best drums ever made. Yeah. It's tough. So that I don't know why that was the trend for these these corporations to buy these well-established brands and slap them on the cheapest stuff available. Uh, it's short-sighted. I don't know what the point of it is. But it um, like it just would it makes sense as a kind of money-hungry like business guy of like um I'm going to buy this oh I, like that's a famous brand. Let's buy it, put it on this. We'll sell some. If we destroy the reputation of the company, they don't. I mean, it seems like people like that, this made up person I'm thinking of, doesn't care, you know, like whatever. Like they're like, oh, we we messed up Roger's drums, but I made $10 million off cheap kits, whatever. And I remember Fender, there were drums that had Fender on the bass drum. Like they were like Fender labeled drums. I would see them pop up on like Craigslist. And it was like, I that had to be just like, same shell that like you know a cheapo rogers kit or cheapo one of those weird uh later period slingerland kits probably the same stuff with just a different label um yeah you know what what do they care and there was a gretch blackhawk my first drum set was a gretch blackhawk that my parents bought for 200 dollars out of a sears christmas catalog there you go and i didn't the Gretsch wasn't even on the label. I didn't even know that that was a Gretsch thing. It just said Black Hawk on the bass yeah, I've drum. Yeah, seen those. So I had a Black Hawk drum set, that, but that was a Gretsch-branded thing for $200. It was a nice kit. It lasted me a year and a half before everything fell apart, yeah. but still. I mean, but like to be the like you know devil's advocate, this, the, the good side of it, that got you into drums. But it didn't need to be Gretsch. I mean, if it didn't say it on it. But that being said, like that's... Uh, but maybe like if your dad's a drummer, he goes, oh, this is Gretsch. Oh, cool. Even though it's not actually that yeah. brand or whatever. But it's like you got to look at it, too, of like there need to be like I started with percussion plus like there need to be yeah. cheap drum sets so people can get into it. Not everyone's buying a, um, you know, a pre buyout DW set uh, as their first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got them rolling joints. <laughs> I know. I know. That was that was so funny to see pop up online being like. Ten thousand dollars pre pre buy pre roll and buy out DW kits. Uh, kudos to the <laughs> yeah. people who made those. Yeah, but I think like so. Let's go to that that point. So there was the Blackhawk kit. That was my first kit. Well, there was no like next level Blackhawk kit. It was just that. Yeah. So when that's broken, you've got to go to the next something else. Pearl had it down. So you get the export. It's a nice kit. It'll last you as long as you want it to last you. But if you're thinking about getting something up from there, you've got the Masters or the Session, not that much more expensive. They get you, oh, you can just get better finishes, you know, or, or better sizes options in those series. Oh, now you're really ready for the, the Primo stuff. So they kind of hook your brand loyalty. Oh, totally. Some of the stuff that, that got done to these 
legacy brands, it didn't have that transition, you know, like there wasn't the decent quality starter kit that makes you fall in love with it, but then you need to upgrade or you feel like, whatever, I'm, I'm 18 years old now. I should probably get a real kit. Yeah. Let me stick with that brand and just get the one that I know is better. There wasn't that. I mean, there wasn't a Rogers, even Ludwig at the time. It was just rockers. That's all that was available. You know, I didn't see any custom shop stuff at the time. No, and I think like you look back on like um, like the blue and olive badges. It's like to me, it's like oh, that's like the seventies. But like there's, and then the eighties was I guess the white and black badge, which is kind of the rocker. But I'm always kind of like, well, what was the higher tier? I guess there were like more of a Keystone badge then and things like that. But um, Pearl did a great job with having the tiers. And I know you had an yeah, export series kit because yeah. I've heard you talk for 200 hours or whatever uh, historically. <laughs> but um, which that's a weird thing with podcasting when you meet people and you say something, they're like, oh, I know. I've heard you say that. It's like, oh. Um, but there's a term for that now, like a certain type of friendship where you know someone just based on your online. Yeah. I could see what that. What is that called? I don't I know. I can't remember what it is, but there is, there is something. It's become a bit of a psychological thing. Like, like people are getting concerned about <laughs> you're getting too attached to. A personality that doesn't even know you exist. Well, like you're not friends with them. <laughs> I, anyone we are friends, Bart. I'm, yeah, I, well, I've actually, we have actually hung out and gone to dinner and stuff. But like, if you're listening, I'm your friend. Uh, no, I do love. That's the beauty of podcasting is just talking to people and getting these like communication stuff. And and I feel like that where I listen to podcasts that are not even remotely drum related, and I'm like, you know, you get connected to people. But you do find yourself repeating stories where you're like, someone's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah. sorry. Now I know how my wife feels with just repeating things. But um, that's a very good point, though, about things not being as effective as they once were. They sit on them too long sometimes. Or I yeah. think they're they're anticipating. Or don't that, know what to do with it. Yeah. Or don't have the tooling. Like when Fender. So I guess that originally Rogers was being made in the same factory as Fender guitars. So there must have been some tooling there. Well, something they got rid of the tooling at something. At some point they must have. And then. What are you left to do? Well, you have to just buy stuff that's already prefabricated. And, you know, because it wasn't when Island Music bought them, they didn't get the the manufacturing side of it. You know, so that was the same thing with, um, like, uh, well, Slingerland, there's a whole story about how the machinery went one place and the company went somewhere else. Yeah, and I Bernie mean, Stone got a bunch of the stuff and made uh, Stone custom drums and did the radio frequency, which uh, he was on. And that was an awesome episode. I get tons of comments about Bernie figuring out the radio frequency uh, equation with his daughter solved it for him and stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, I wonder how it works as uh an employee of these companies. You know what I mean? Like you get bought and mm. sold and you're just like someone maybe working on the line or maybe you're a little bit higher up and you're like nah, the marketing director or whatever. Like what happens then with like, yeah, what do you do? I mean, I think we're always told in the same, I mean, obviously I don't wish ill for anyone, but the same story of nothing's going to change. Well, nothing's going to change until something changes. That's, that's just, that's like a, you know, a silly phrase but that's just the way it is of course everyone's going to tell you nothing's going to change but eventually something's going to change it's just who who what when and where what gets consolidated what stays i mean that's just that's the terrible part like when with promark you know some of my friends lost their job when when they got sold it was for better for the brand and better for the product and better for the company but it was not better for those people that i cared dearly about so yeah that's just the ugly side of of consolidation that we you know, it's inevitable. Um, I mean, we saw that with, with the magazine, 
once it sold, it was like who was the first people to go. It was the top level people because you don't need you don't need people to run the business when someone else is coming in to run the business. You know, the smallness of our industry means I know almost everyone who works at all every one of these companies, and you know, and and there's maybe less than a handful of people in the industry that I sincerely don't ever want to talk to. You know, less than <laughs> almost everyone. It's like, I want to go out to dinner with them. I want to hang out with them. I'll, yeah. I'm curious yeah. how their family is, you know, like it's so small in that regard. Like, you know, I feel it's, you almost had to take care of each other. You know, like when I, when I shifted gigs, I had dozens of writers that no longer had gigs. That's a tough one. So I brought as many of them over with me to help me with the content creation for Jump Factory Direct as I could. And, and whenever I heard about other gigs, I would make sure I recommend them to, you know, it was like, it was, it was heartbreaking. Not that we were, you know, paying anybody's mortgage, writing, being a freelance writer for a magazine. No, but, but you're, it's a multiple different small, I mean, I freelance doing video and audio and it's, it's multiple small things add up to a a salary basically. Um, yeah. And you helped you me. I had some possible stuff that could have been happening that we kind of talked about and, um, and, and gave advice and stuff. And, and these things, uh, I think that's the community that we all know and like, and uh, and and just helping each other. Um, which, that being said, corporate giants coming in buying companies doesn't quite gel with that community based helping each other vibe. Uh, yeah, not so much, yeah. especially when it's an international corporation that has no reason to care about what twenty people in New York City are doing for a living. They really just don't have to care. It's just too, it's too, the bigger picture is just too big for them to care about that. And that, I mean, I'm assuming they'll also have more capital for buyouts for severances and things like that. Let's hope. But yeah, the multinational thing is what starts to scare me. Because again, I worked with Roland as on the journalism side and it's like, who am I dealing with? Am I dealing with USA? Am I dealing with Europe? Am I dealing with UK? Am I dealing with Japan? Like what, where does this have to go for me to get approval to write this 200 word <laughs> paragraph <laughs> yeah does this sort of thing happen with companies in asia like are there many buyouts that i mean i'm not really aware of it happening much of over there no. companies being bought and sold no i mean i tried to look at look into that and there's been very little i mean the companies who started tama and pearl and yamaha they they still control it and maybe i mean the the presidents and all that stuff have changed, but there hasn't been, I mean, aside from like Yamaha severing their ties with Sakai and shifting manufacturing all to China, that was, that was a, that was a huge blow. And it, in my opinion, was not good for Yamaha drums for a while. Uh, it just felt really cold and they were getting rid of the company that was making their best products. So again, skeptical eyes, why'd you do that? You make it cheaper, less, you know, the quality, something's got to give. Um, but that's the only one I can think of where, and also their, their newer companies, Pearl and Tama, they came along 50, 75 years later than Ludwig Rogers and that's true. Sunderland. That's true. So they've got a while to go before they might hit that precipice of what's going to happen next. I guess what you said early on is important about DW was kind of one of the last family, fully family owned legacy brands, which I guess DW is what, 50, 50 years old or so, I think it said still f pretty fresh and they really they'd really arrived i think in the late 80s you know once the once the 5000 pedal became standard and the double pedal like when they got rid of that second that double pedal had the second bracket on it yeah 
when they finally got rid of that and had it all integrated, like that was the only double pedal that you would ever want is that that 5000 accelerator. Yeah. Until the Iron Cobra That's, comes along and uh, Yeah, well, yeah there you <laughs> there go. There you go. Case in point. Um nowadays a lot of things are pretty quality. I mean, you know, who who makes it yeah. where it comes from is only important when you're nerding out and you're looking really deep into it. I would love to be a beginning drummer right now because you can't fail. Yeah. Just no. pick anything. Pick whichever looks cool. Pick whichever is available. I mean, it, it's going to be good. Yeah. It doesn't matter at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I have a Ludwig beginner, super like a junior kit for my son. And it's like, this thing's awesome. Like way yeah. better than the percussion plus kit that I had. I mean, I didn't even have a floor <laughs> right. tom. I didn't have a hi-hat. He's got everything. Um, and I'm jealous of him. No. Um, <laughs> so I think that's a cool, that's a good talk about that. I mean, I think now we should go to the more important topic, which is the drum click podcast network. Uh, <laughs> no, the I'm most kidding. important, the thing. most important, but, but um, so you host the drum candy podcast, which is just awesome. Kind of your, you know, your next move after, uh, you know, the uh, modern drummer podcast, which I think drum candy is awesome. I wear that t-shirt all the time. I was going to wear it today. But I had babies spit up on it, so I had to uh. Uh, wash it. But um, now you're doing a great yeah. job with all that. And you and I have joined forces. So Ben Hilzinger and, and, and Chris from Big Fat Snare Drum have kind of put together the Drum Click, which is Drum Candy, Drum History Podcast, Sarah Hagen Backstage, and then Working yeah. Drummer Podcast with uh, Matt and Zach. And uh, we're it's just really cool to be doing this together with you guys because like we've we are like-minded people and we've joined forces and one thing i will say about the network is nothing has changed <laughs> like it's kind of funny yeah. with this with this topic like you know <laughs> we're like not that big fat snare drum is like a conglomerate huge company but like <laughs> really nothing has changed like it's they just kind of provide some advertising we read it we send it in uh yeah. that's about it i mean that is a change because um i mean full disclosure when when Ben said, Hey, I want to start selling advertising. My first reaction was I can't do it. Like that's, that's not part of why I do this. I'm not doing this to sell advertising. You know, back in the, the modern drummer days, um, I actually was able to refuse some things. Hmm. It was like, cause some stuff, cause I, I, I don't ever want to sound like I'm lying or, yeah. or, or misrepresenting that. I feel like that's been part of my personal brand, which I, you'll never hear me say that ever again. It's the one time in, in the history of my life that I'll talk about my personal brand, yeah. <laughs> but it's been integrity. So when he would sell, try to sell me an ad or advertising director, it was like, I know this product sucks, man. I can't, I can't go on this show and talk to my listeners who buy the things that we talk about about something that I know sucks. And I had to hold the line and I got, you know, I got a lot of arguments about it because several hundred bucks is several hundred bucks. Yeah, I remember hearing you say that on the podcast, something along those lines. It speaks to your, like, uh, you know, you have your, your integrity, you know, to kind of say no to some things. Yeah. And I know, I'm, and for me, I'm in a unique situation where I have a full-time job. So, you know, this isn't freelance work for me. No. This is part of my full-time job, but it's still been, I mean, I was retired from podcasting. <laughs> And Ben called me up and he's like, I, well, I want to start a network and you have to be one of the shows. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want it because I got burnt so bad with it the way it ended in the old show. I was like, I don't know, dude. And first of all, who the hell wants to hear me talk? It was all about Johnston. The I world was just does. The, I was the color commentator for him. Oh, man. <laughs> now, you guys were a good mix. But so Mike, Mike Johnston has drum with Mike and Eddie, which is also an awesome yeah. show. You guys have both helped me throughout the years. And I will say, just to kind of like uh, 
a big breakthrough moment for me was getting featured as the pick of the week by Mike Johnston mm-hmm. early on. I mean, I was that was within like 10 or 12 episodes of me starting my show. Right. And then I got like the listenership went up like 1500 downloads a month by getting mentioned. And I remember you were like uh, kind of dryly. You're like, oh, is that the oh, yeah, he like he like posts old commercials on Instagram. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, sort of, sort of. Um, you guys had a big effect on the 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 industry, and I think your people do want to hear from you, and and you are kind of like a well respected dude who who's a straight shooter. Um, I think you and Mike, your personalities. Mike is hot buttered biscuits uh, <laughs> over here, and then you're more of like kind of the straight man. You know what I mean? Um, kind of uh, yeah, putting it. I mean, you need both. Punk rock kid, you can't can't lie. You know <laughs> that's why I hated acting classes in school. It's like I can't do this. I'm freaking lying. Yeah, I don't believe these words. <laughs> I can't do this. Yeah, they're like, dude, just, punk rock kid. <laughs> just just read the line. It's eighth grade or something. Um, uh, yeah, but the network has been great. I mean, I think in our situation, the parallel with this whole consolidation. I mean, Chris and Ben are two of the most genuine, full of integrity people that I've ever met. So of course, I mean, they would never tell us to do anything that we weren't comfortable doing. Yeah. And we've had these conversations that every time we talk about advertising, it's like, well, are you cool with this? Yeah. I mean, no one really has to get everyone's approval. It could just be like, we're doing this or you're out of the network. Yeah. There's I mean, never simple as like that. that. We're like advertising like other small drum brands, smallish yeah, exactly. drum brands. So it's all very natural. It's, it's a small. It, I mean, the people who listen to podcasts who are drummers is so small. And that was something Johnson and I would talk about whenever we would kind of go over our numbers. It was like. Man, if we talked about anything else, literally anything else, our numbers would be 10 times what they are. It's just such a small, because it's drummers, and then it's drummers who like podcasts. And then who like history in my world. But I think Mike Johnston always said, like, our biggest competitor is like, for drummers, is like soccer practice. Because you're like, you're fighting with with all that stuff. But um, so... As we kind of wrap up, why don't you talk about Drum Factory Direct and kind of plug that a little bit and tell people like what what you guys do and where you can, you know, where they should look to find, you know, the cool parts and all that stuff. Yeah. So I think I should probably back it up a bit. And, and you know, like I said, they were kind of recruited me. It, they were looking for freelance writers. I had no idea who the company was. I'm sure at some point I had Googled like a replacement lug and found the website, but you know, we all joke about the website is so old. The website, I think, was launched in 2007 or something. So when I was interviewing with them, I had no idea that they were based in the United States even. I thought they were it was like a Chinese website or something. Sure. Little did I know it was a family-owned business. It was a, a father and wife and daughter and son. Cool. I mean, that's essentially – and then there's three guys who work in the warehouse. There's just – that's it. Small family-owned business. Um so I was joking, like, I if if I hadn't talked to you, I would never have even returned your email because I would have thought it was a Chinese company trying to recruit me to do something. Yeah. So we still kind of joke about that because the new website's still in development. But they um they he, he just kind of struck a perfect mix. So the founder, Matt, used to make high-quality stave drums. Oh, cool. Um, so he had a whole bunch. Of, so he was getting all these drum parts and hoops and everything. It was called Global Drums. He hurt his back really bad and couldn't make drums anymore. And he had all these parts. So he just started an eBay store and called it Drum Factory Direct. And it just took off. Wow. Like 
insane. I mean, he 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 jokes all the time that mortgages are paid with tension rods around here. <laughs> it's the small stuff. It's this. It's, I mean, if we're going to music stores, screws. it's not drum sets. It's sticks and heads and tension rods and yeah. There is no drum sets. We do have some shell packs, like blank shells. So a lot of our customers are are hobbyist builders or boutique companies. Like most of the boutique companies in our industry buy like tension rods and things from us or hoops and stuff. So yeah, they found a niche of of we don't sell complete instruments. We have a couple snare drums and a few cymbals here and there, but it's just all the pieces that you could want if you need to replace or make your own drums. Uh, so they, and they had no marketing. They've never marketed. They've never done anything, and they've been very successful. So they they wanted they brought me in to develop the creative department for them, which originally was rewriting all the website copy. I did two million words. <laughs> Man, websites are a beast. <laughs> websites are like changing an image and adding some text will take like four hours. You know, I mean, I was editing 10 to 6 every day, editing or writing, because I, like I said, I brought in some writers from Modern Drummer to help with, with a bulk of it, but I was writing or editing um, website copy 10 to 6 every day, and then I would come back down here from like 10 or 9 30 or 10 to 2 a.m every day for six wow. months because that was the first charge we have to get this yeah. new copy rewritten yeah. so i knew like oh this is going to be the worst six months of my life <laughs> but on the other side of it now i have creative freedom because that core content's done now i get to do the fun stuff so that's when we did the podcast and reworking you know, youtube stuff and took over all the social media stuff so you know, I got brought in a, a graphic designer that was the bass player in my punk band in high school. So he's doing all the new graphic design. So it's a small family-owned company, all e-commerce. We, you can pick stuff up at the door, uh, but you can't come in and shop. They have an old church here in Pittsburgh that's just floor to ceiling with drum cool. parts and accessories. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's cool to find a job that uses, if you have multiple different skills, like writing and drum knowledge and and social media and uh you know you are well known in the industry through the podcast and all that stuff it's just putting everything together but like they needed that that face like to yeah. get it out in the world because now it's like if you're not on social media and if you're not doing um you know if you're not on youtube then you're like i don't want to say you don't exist but you know what i mean like as a business you have to have yeah, that face you basically don't exist yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and everything like like another big project for me was for like taking new photos of all the products. And that was, I mean, I dabbled in product photography for modern drummer when like a random drum would come in and it, no photos exist. But to say like, you've got to do 9,000 products oh, yeah. ASAP and they have to be consistent. Like trying to photograph a small Chrome lug. I, I wanted to quit many times more frustrating than trying to play new breed for me <laughs> was trying to photograph a one inch, tube lug with round spheres on either side i would do all these tests and sometimes i would do a whole day of photography and and they'd be like ah these just aren't quite right i'm like and they would send me like you look at harley davidson's website that's what we want it to look like i was like you understand they've probably spent a month on this one photo of a motorcycle i've got nine thousand drum parts to shoot like and that's how a motorcycle <laughs> that's cool that's a motor tension rod <laughs> and that's one of the biggest like motorcycle companies. That's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's like, okay. Yeah, they probably spent $20,000 to photograph that motor. So it, you know, I'm glad that the challenge was there. And it, and I, I mean, I took it, I've taken, I do take it very it seriously. Yeah. I feel like I've gotten, I've gotten to a point where I can function to get a, a, 
a, you know, compared to what we have on the site now, it's like anything is better because some of them are like cell phone photos or scans of catalogs and stuff. So, so that's been like a whole new, like that, that challenge, especially during a pandemic when I can't go anywhere, it's like, just go to the warehouse and put some hoops on the floor and figure out how to reflect light to make it make sense <laughs> has been and the crazy part is the ironic thing is the new website isn't launched, so none of that work <laughs> <laughs> yeah, has been out it, there. It'll some someday come to come to life. But, man, websites are a beast, and it takes forever, and they're expensive. And uh, yeah, I feel like when you finish a website, a, a counter, a timer begins to when you have to redo it and like add to it because it's like got to always stay updated and things like that. But that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, on, I'll put the links to like you know. Mike's podcast, Drum Factory Direct, the Drum Click, um, all this stuff in the description so people can check it out. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to kind of promote as we finish up here? I mean, Mike's on social media. You can find him, Mike Dawson, on on Instagram and all that stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm really putting a bulk of my effort into the Drum Factory Direct YouTube channel. Like all my, I'm, my personal YouTube channel is dormant because I, I feel like it's just a crime that they're their channel isn't getting more access. So if, yeah. if you're looking for it, because I'm every podcast goes up there in video form. I also do separate segments with the interviews and the product. All that stuff is there. Yep. So yeah, I mean that if there's one ask, it'd be please just subscribe to that channel because that's going to be the moving forward. That's going to be the hub for all of the content that I create or anyone. Yeah. That, that Drum Factor Direct creates. Yeah, YouTube is a, I just listened, uh, read slash listened to an audio book about uh, the algorithm. I'm trying to get more into YouTube and um, it's a, it's an ocean. Like podcasts are like a, a lake and like, or like a pond. YouTube <laughs> is an ocean. I mean, it is huge and you got to just stick at it, man. Everything's so much work, but um, I, yeah. I, but it's like the number two search engine yes, in the world. Yes. Especially for podcasts. Google and then YouTube. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, and, and I'm seeing so much garbage with the social media companies that I have no faith that that they're effective in any way, shape, or form. And, yeah. and I've said that from the beginning. Like, I don't want to have my brand or anyone's brand solely based on social media because they change one thing and you're screwed. Yes. Like, I, I made my uh, Facebook profile public for the first time just to see what would happen. In the past two days, I've probably had 50 spam posts on my page. Yeah. It just makes you want to shut it down because now I'm just moderating the garbage because I made a picture of my drum set public. And I mean, so like I don't want to be on Facebook anymore. That's that no, and not good. I'll, with Facebook, I have you know decent about nine thousand, but it's like it are likes or is it followers? I have about nine thousand <laughs> followers on there, but it's like I'll post a video on Instagram that'll get twenty thousand views, and on Facebook it'll get uh, three likes and like forty five views, and I'm like. What's it's the same video, I guess. Uh, yeah. I just have kind of lost interest in Facebook as a business thing. Um, yeah, I mean uh, Instagram as well. I, I feel like those are those were cool for a while, and they hooked us all, and they got us addicted to it. I mean, when I first got on Instagram, I was getting fifty thousand views, yeah. seventy five thousand views, and now if I break a thousand, it's like, oh, that one did well. Yeah. So they hooked us. They made us all addicted, and then they changed it. Yeah. And now you got to pay to boost all your stuff. So. It's not, it's, it's a lot. It's, I mean, it will still always post to it for myself and for DFD, but I feel like YouTube is now like, that's where you got to get serious. Yeah. Like that, put your real content there and there's money there. Stop, you know, stop chasing the, the vanity of social media. That's my advice to any drummer. It's like create a, a quality YouTube channel. Yeah. 
And I'm still trying to figure it out because it's a, the science to the thumbnails and oh, all that. Dude, the thumbnail. Thumbnails take <laughs> – I mean, this is a whole conversation. Thumbnails – I mean, once you finish doing a video, it's like, now i got to put another 45 minutes into a thumbnail. But, like, that was the key An of that excerpt. book was, like, yeah. reach uh, – connect with your audience, make a cool thumbnail, uh, keywords, blah, 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 blah. And that was about it. Yeah. It's not too different than when at Modern Journal we talked about cover heads, you yeah. know, like – yeah, it took a long like that was the battle that we would have in meetings often the old timers versus the new the new school like old timers like well, it doesn't matter if the content's good the content's good and then the new school thought was well if you don't write a good cover head first your story is irrelevant so if your story does not create a really captivating cover head which has to have a number and a call to action and all that stuff you might as well not even write that story which was infuriating. I was on both sides of it. I was like, that's infuriating because I have trust that people want to read quality content if it's not 10 ways to play a paradiddle or whatever, you know, get get faster in five minutes. But that's the psychology of humans. Yeah, we see that too. we're interested in it. You have to have a yeah. good title. Like this one's going to be called like, uh, Mike Dawson hates rolling drums or something like that. Uh, <laughs> no, but you do have to have something clickable that's like, but it'll be like, you got to have something that's like uh, what makes people you there's so much content you need to have it be uh, enough to draw you in. I'm guilty of it. I mean, I scroll on YouTube and Netflix and everything until you find something that goes, oh, that that looks cool. So, yeah, 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 it's, it's I mean, I, I come from the old school of like, I like a record label, therefore I'm going to buy sure. everything they put sure. out. I don't care. Like that's that's just old school and I'm old. So I think. You know, I have to acknowledge that that's not everyone, but I think a little bit of that will help. It's so, both. Yeah. You know, you put out, it's like I'm trying to make everything that goes on the DFT's page at least good quality, not necessarily clickbaity. Yep. So then. No, you do. So when we flip over to do the clickbaity <laughs> stuff, you're going to trust <laughs> yeah. me. Like, this one's silly. This was silly on purpose. Like, I did uh, uh, my interview with Jefferson from Sugar Percussion. He's got this amazing photo of himself nude inside of drum shells. <laughs> he's not nude, he's just like sure. shirtless, but it looks like he's yeah. nude. I was like, I've got to use this for the thumbnail. Dude. It's clickable. I was like, sure, you know, yeah. kill my company, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, so sometimes I go kind of silly just to see what'll happen. Yeah, but you know, but like that's YouTube where it's like, like I, you know, I watch computer reviews or whatever. And it's like the head, it, like the thumbnail's like, this will kill Apple. And then you watch <laughs> it, they're like, oh, Apple's fine. Like, no, duh. Like you, of course, it's just so clickable. But. um Cool. Well, Mike, yeah. this is awesome, man. Um, this is a nice long one. So everyone listening, I think we'll skip the bonus episode today and just get Mike out of here. But um, uh, if you want to hear previous bonus episodes, go to Patreon and all that good stuff. This was a great one. I mean, I'm really happy we had you on and, uh, and have gotten to um, hang out over the years and stuff. And uh, hopefully I think I'll be at PASIC. It's kind of the middle of the week, so it makes it hard, but um, yeah. I should be at PASIC. Uh, so hopefully... I'm there Thursday, Friday. I got to leave Friday night to get back to, for a gig on Saturday, unfortunately. Okay, okay. I'll be there. So I'll be missing Johnson's Clinic. That'll be... I'll see him. Yeah. Like crossing ships. There's a, there's a title. <laughs> Mike Dawson hates Mike Johnston. That <laughs> How Johnston killed the MD podcast. Yes. There's your title. There's the title. Yeah, and the thumbnail uh, with Mike with like a big X through him. Now, Mike's an awesome guy. He he he's helped me out a bunch of times too. We talk on the phone and stuff somewhat, you know, every couple months. But um, awesome. Anyway, Mike, thank you for being here. Um, everyone, check out Drum Factory Direct. Uh, keep up with the drum click and uh, all that good stuff. Um, so, Mike, thank you for being here, my friend. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. 
Until next time, keep on learning.